on a screen. We're going to start off a little history lesson this morning. You should be familiar with these words. See if you know what they're from. We hold these truths to be self-evident. That all men are created equal. That they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. That among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Where does that come from? I should have you raise your hand. How many don't know where that's from? I won't have you do that. Your history teacher in school would be appalled. It's from the Declaration of Independence, isn't it? We are a nation of people who are obsessed, pretty much, with our rights. We have God-given unalienable rights, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, and it's our right to have those things, right? And you all say, yeah. And now you're thinking, what does that have to do with being a disciple? And we'll come back to that. As you're turning to 1 Corinthians chapter 9, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, over the past number of months, occasionally we've come back to the truth of Scripture that if you have accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, the New Testament more than anything else categorizes you as a disciple. That's a word used far more than anything else to describe what we're considered. And so we've tried to study from the New Testament what it means to be a disciple so we can kind of give a self-check. Are we being what we are? If we are disciples, can we say we're meeting the requirements? The word disciple in and of itself just means learner or students. But we know in the first century when Jesus and his disciples were around, it meant a whole lot more than that. Because disciples in his day would basically submit their lives to their rabbi. If they could follow him around 24-7, that's what they would do. And you know, that's what the disciples did, right? They followed Jesus everywhere he went. And since they spent so much time with their rabbi, their rabbis would give them tests to see if they really wanted to be disciples. One of the tests Jesus gave his disciples was to say this in Luke 14, if anyone comes to me and doesn't hate his father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Reminding those who would follow him that if you want to be his disciple, nothing can come before him. If anything comes before him, you're not being a disciple. He expected his disciples to obey his authority, to be in compliance. That's why he said in Luke 6, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say? It doesn't make sense. If you say you're my disciple, I assume you're going to obey what I tell you. And because of that, he gave his disciples other commands. Like in Luke 13, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know you're my disciples if you have love for one another. Ultimately, he expects disciples to be committed to do whatever it took to be a disciple. And so he gave us a master statement of commitment in Matthew 28, didn't he? 
If you're committed to follow his authority that he has in heaven and on earth, he said, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. That's the commitment we're supposed to follow if we're disciples. Now here's some of the difficulty. We look at just these three, and we didn't look at all the ones we've looked at over the months. And we say, man, these are difficult. These give us a challenge because we look at this list and then we start thinking, what about us? What about what we want? Aren't we free to do what we want to do? Because from this list, it sure doesn't look like it, does it? In fact, there's a pretty good tension between what we want many times and what God wants. And so we got verses like Galatians 5.13 where it says, well, wait a minute, you're called to freedom, brothers. Or 1 Peter where he says, live as people who are free. So don't we have rights to be free to do whatever we want to do? And in this country, it's really tough for us because we're always told you have to have your rights. We're in 1 Corinthians 9. Look at Paul's first phrase here. Am I not free? We just ask ourselves that question. Aren't we free to do what we want? And Paul's saying, am I not free? Now this chapter 9 is in the midst of a couple of chapters dealing with, in this church they were arguing about whether they had the right to eat meat that was offered to pagan idols. And some thought they were right to eat it, and some thought they didn't have the right to eat it. So in the midst of this rights discussion, whether they could eat it or not, Paul throws these verses in. Look at verses 1-7 to of chapter 9. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Or not you my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I'm not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship as the Lord. This is my defense to those who would examine me. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas, that's Peter? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Don't we have rights, Paul says. And which ones does he throw in? The first one he says in verse 4, don't we have the right to fulfill our legitimate personal needs? Don't we have the right to food and drink? Don't we have the right to eat whatever we want, whenever we want, how much we want? Don't we have that right? By the way, what's the answer to that? Yes, you do. Secondly, verse 5, don't we have the right to take along a believing wife? Some of the other apostles are doing it. So what's he saying? Don't I have the right to a personal life? Don't I have the right to normal family relations? And the answer to that is, you do. You have rights. Verse 6, a little more challenging one here. He's really saying, don't I have a right to personal time? He says, is it only Barnabas and I who are working for a living? And in verse 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, he's going to make the argument, you understand that a minister should be paid by those he ministers to. Don't we have the right to have you meet our expenses? But Paul says, here we are working a full-time job on our own time while we're trying to minister to you. Don't we have a right to some personal time? And the answer to that is what? Yes. 
But let me ask you this question. How many times in serving Christ have you been a little ticked off because it affects your personal needs or your personal life or your personal time? Why? The tension between our rights and what Christ asks. Look at verse 12. There's a fourth right here. Verse 12, he says, nevertheless, in the middle of it, we have not made use of this right. Verse 15, I have made no use of any of these rights. What right do I have? Don't I have the right of personal choice? Can I choose to do something or choose not to do something? And the answer is yes. And in this case, Paul is saying, I'm choosing not to do some things. I'm choosing not to use my personal rights. And we'll come back to that, but I wanted you to see first, what are some of the reasons that Paul gives that he says here, I have all these rights, but I'm not using them. Look at verse 12. Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. So he didn't use his right because he didn't want to hinder the gospel in any way. He didn't want to put any obstacle in their way to hear the gospel. Verse 15 looks a little confusing because he said, I have made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision, for I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. And you're sitting there saying, wait a minute, we're not supposed to boast. Well, the word boast here is really the word glory. And it can be good or bad depending on the context. So in here he's talking about the eternal glory of being able to minister to them. And he says, I'm not using my rights because I don't want to be deprived of my boasting and glory that goes with it. Third thing in verse 18, what then is my reward that in my preaching I may present the gospel free of charge so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel? Why didn't he use his rights here? He didn't, he wanted to bring them the gospel at no charge. He didn't want to burden them with having to pay him. He says that in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. He says, when I was with you and was in need, I did not burden anyone. I had my needs supplied by other people. And so he could have said, you have to pay me, but he decided not to burden them with that. Verse 23, I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in blessing. Verse 22, I have become all things to all people that by all means I might save some or that some might be saved. You know, Paul didn't save anybody. But here's what's interesting. Here's Paul's reasons for not using his personal rights here. Four of the five reasons have to do with the gospel. With making disciples has something to do with our rights. We'll come back to that. But here's the reasons Paul didn't use his rights. Are there any reasons that we shouldn't use our God-given rights at times? Can't we, aren't we free to do whatever we want to do? Or are there times when we must give up our rights for something else? you got verses like 1 Timothy 6, which talks about the rich in this present age. By the way, that's us. Some of you are thinking, I'm not very rich. In this context, you're rich. Charge them not to be haughty nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Did God give us everything to enjoy? The answer is yes. He makes that statement. So aren't I free to do whatever I want, whenever I want, with the things God has provided to enjoy? Well, let's see if that's true. Go back to 1 Corinthians 6. Look at 
verse 12. He starts with this phrase, All things are lawful for me. Same idea with He provides us richly everything to enjoy. God's given me all things that are lawful, but then what's the next word after that? Little word, what's it say? Yeah, you hate that word, don't you? All things are lawful for me to do. I have the right to do anything. And then he says, but there may be some times when you cannot use your rights, when you choose not to use them. Well, when might that be? First would be when it involves sin. First John 2, 1, we're told, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. We never have a right to sin. Am I free to sin? The answer is what? Yes. You may say, wow, that's unspiritual. You and I are both free to sin, but I have no right to sin once I've been saved by Christ. That right is taken away. And if I'm trying to use a right that involves sin, I no longer have a right. I must not use it for that. Notice what he says here in verse 13. He said all things are lawful, but then he says what in verse 13? Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. Verse 18, flee from sex or immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Well, yeah, all things are lawful for me, but not sin. And he uses sexual immorality as an example here to remind us if something involves sin, I don't have a right to do it. But back in verse 12, all things are lawful for me, but... Not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. So when do I have to not use my God-given rights when it would harm me or not help me physically or spiritually? Because he said that. All things are not helpful. I may have a right to do it, but if it's not going to help me spiritually, I should give up my right to do it. The second one's even worse. I will not be dominated or mastered by anything. It's amazing how many things start out okay. But once it starts mastering me, I must give up the right to do it. Isn't technology great? How many love technology? Yeah, it's great. But how fast can technology master us? Is it my right to use technology? Yeah, until technology starts to master me. Then I need to cut back. Something needs to be given up. Because it's not beneficial and helpful for me to do that. Look at verse 19. Do you not know your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. I have no right to do anything to this body that I know would harm it physically, because it's not mine, it's God's. So if I know I have the right to do something, but I also know it it will harm my body, I have no right to do it. I must give up that right. Look in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 23. First, he'll say the same thing again we just saw in verse 23. All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. 
All things are lawful, but not all things build up or all things edify. I have the right to do all things, but if it's something that's not going to help me spiritually, I should not do it. I should give it up. I should stop it. My choice to stop it. But there's a third one here. He says not all things build up. That's talking about ourself, and it's talking about others. Look at the next verse. Let no one seek his own good but the good of his neighbor. Eat whatever sold in the market meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, remember the meat offered to pagan idols, then don't eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. I don't mean your conscience, but his. Then he says, why should my conscience be determined by someone else's conscience? We'll answer that later, but the point is, it is determined by someone else's conscience. I have the right to do anything I want unless it causes problems or won't be helpful to other believers. Then I have no right to do it. I have to give up that right. Look at 1 Corinthians 8, verses 7 to 9. He talks about the knowledge there's one God. Verse 7 says, However, not all possess this knowledge, but some through former association with idols eat food as really offered to an idol, even though they're nothing, and their conscience being weak is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are we're not, no worse off if we do not eat, no better off if we do. But take care this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. I have a right to do all sorts of things unless I find out it's going to be a problem for another brother. Here's an example in 2 Thessalonians 3, where Paul says, you know, you know yourselves how you ought to imitate us, because we weren't idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor, we worked night and day. We might not be a burden to any of you. The same thing he did with Corinth. They worked a job to pay for their expenses rather than have the church pay for it. But then he says this. It's not because we don't have that right. We had the right to ask you to pay. But to give you an in ourselves an example to imitate. He chose to give up a right because he knew it would be more helpful for them to see an example of somebody doing this for them. That was his choice. We read part of this verse last earlier. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Always good to have it in context, though, isn't it? Only don't use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you want your own priorities before everybody else, if you want your rights, you're going to bite and devour one another. So watch out you're not consumed by each other. And we hate to say it's what we do, don't we? We want our rights. But we're supposed to give them up if it will be beneficial for somebody else. We had this verse also. God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. But what's the rest of the verse? We're supposed to do good, be rich in good works, be generous and ready to share. We have all sorts of rights. 
But we also have the right of personal choice where we're supposed to give up the use of those rights if it's going to cause a problem for another believer. Let's go to the fourth one. And this is mostly what Paul's talking about in this chapter. Look at verse 19 of chapter 9. We're willing to give up our rights when it will hinder or help the spread of the gospel. When it will help make disciples or will will hinder make disciples, we need to be able to give up our rights. Verse 19, he says, For though I am free from all, there's that freedom statement again. The all in this case is ceremonies, practices, religious traditions, religious obligations. Paul said, once I got saved, none of those religious trappings were necessary. All I needed was Christ. I'm free from all that. But what did he do? I made myself a servant of all. I might win more of them. Now he's going to say, all right, let me give you some illustrations how this works. That I have all these rights to be free, but I decided to give them up to serve other people. So here's what Paul says he did. Here's the illustrations. Four of them illustrating the same principle. To the Jews, verse 20, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ that I might win those outside the law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. Here's his illustrations of this principle of giving up your rights. He says, to the Jews I became as a Jew. Stick something here in 1 Corinthians 9 and go back to Acts 18. We'll be back to 1 Corinthians Acts 18, we'll see some illustrations of this. He's talking to the Jews as a people, ethnically. Okay, when I'm in the the ethnic people of the Jews, Paul says, here's what I did. Chapter 18, verse 1 says, After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. He found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them. And because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Paul was with the Jews ethnically, he was a Jew ethnically. He lived with them, he worked with them, he went to synagogue with them, and he said that was no problem for him. Plus he was a Jew. It helped him a little bit there, didn't it? Secondly, Second group, he says, to those under the law, I became as one under the law. Now, what law is he talking about? Again, he's talking about religious religious ceremonies, religious practices, religious traditions. Those who say, I've got to keep these religious traditions. I'm just convinced I have to do that. Now, you notice his little paraphrase there where he said, he understands he's not under the law. None of this has any spiritual benefit for him. Look at Acts 21. Here's an example of what Paul would do. 21 verse 17. When we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. After greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified God, and they said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. 
They were all zealous for the law. And they have been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Thus all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance of the law. Did Paul need to take this vow and purify himself? No. It did nothing for Paul spiritually. To those under the law, the Jews who thought keeping these traditions were still important, he became as one under the law and did what was necessary for them to accept his word. Notice in verse 25, they told the Gentiles who believed, they gave them a letter that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols, from blood, from what has been strangled, from sexual immorality. In other words, stay away, Gentiles, from those things that bother the Jewish people. The Jewish believers become like those under the law in these things. His third illustration, to those outside the law, I became as one outside the law. Now, as he say becoming a criminal? Is that what he's talking about? Butch Paul and the Sundance Kid, is that what it is? No, he's not talking about the law of Moses. He's again talking about ceremony against practices. He says to those who don't have to keep any religious practices, I became as one of those. Remember the council at Jerusalem in Acts 15. The Gentiles were told by the council they didn't have to become Jews to be saved. They didn't have to be circumcised to be saved. They could just be Gentiles. Illustrations that in Galatians 2, a problem he and Peter had. Cephas is Peter. When Peter comes to Antioch, Paul opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. He was being a Gentile. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party, and the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force Gentile to live like Jews? The reminder to those outside the law... You become as one outside the law. You follow their practices. It's okay. Then his fourth illustration, to the weak, I became weak. Go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. What's he talking about when he says the weak? He's talking about weak in conscience. Romans 14 says this, As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. Let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. For God has welcomed him. Are we saying weaker believers are lesser Christians? The answer is no. That's not what we're saying. That the stronger look down on the weaker. No. The stronger abide by the conscience of the weaker who can't do certain things, those who are considered, with quotes, stronger in faith. That means you're a stronger Christian because you can do certain things. Look at 1 Corinthians 8, verse 10 to 13. 
For if anyone sees you have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died, thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it's weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. We look at verse 13 and we say, not in this country. I'll have my rights. And what does Paul say? With a weak person, if eating meat makes his stumble, I'll give up my right to ever eat meat. If that's the way to reach him. Interesting perspective, isn't it? Why does he do this? Back in chapter 9, verse 19. Though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. He gave up his right to be served, to be a servant to all, to win more of them, to make disciples. That's why he's choosing not to use his rights that he has every right to use. Now we look at this list. To the Jews, that becomes a Jew. One under the law, becomes one under the law. And we kind of think, what is Paul asking us to do? Is he asking us to be fake people? Is he asking us to kind of be chameleons who kind of change with whoever we're with and we're not the same person we are here, we're a different person here, and nobody really knows what we're like? Or this list, same thing. I gotta give up this for this believer and give up this to, so I can't be my real self anymore. Is that what Paul's saying? That's how some people take it. Well, I have the right to be who I am, right? Now, here's what he's not saying. Remind you a couple of things. There is a difference between pleasing men and being what are called men pleasers. And you may say, well, what are men pleasers? We're told in scripture we're not to do that part. Galatians 1.10 says, for am, I, for am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I only trying to please man? If I were trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. That's a men pleaser. I'll do whatever it takes for their approval or not their disapproval. I'll work all I can to do whatever would please them. So if something I would say would be a problem for them with Scripture, I won't say anything about Scripture. I'll never say anything about what I believe. It's not what we're talking about here. That's men-pleasers. I won't do anything that might upset them. That's not what he's talking about. You understand this. In 1 Peter 2, we're told that the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. That stone is Jesus Christ. And he's a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. If we talk about Jesus Christ, if we talk about the only way to salvation, is that a natural way some people will be offended, no matter what we say? The answer is, and so because they'll be offended, I shouldn't say anything, right? Is that what he's saying? Let me just read to you 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 4. Just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. We never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor do we seek glory from people, that's men pleasers, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands. Verse 8, we were ready to share with you the gospel of God. 
in this becoming all things to all men. If I share about Christ and I share the gospel and I share the truth of his word and they're offended, that's their problem. He's not telling me don't do that. He is telling me this. Look at 1 Corinthians 10, 32. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone and everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many that they may be saved. This is a summary verse what he's been talking about for a couple of chapters. If I mention the gospel and they're offended, that's going to be their problem. But if there's some practice that I'm doing that causes them a problem or offends them, and it's a practice I don't need to be doing, I'll give it up so I don't lose a hearing with them or I can win a hearing with them. That's what pleases God and serves Christ. We're not talking the truth of the gospel. We're talking about practices we're generally free to do. But if I know it's going to cause them a problem, I won't do it. I do please men, but I'm not here to be a men pleaser. The second thing you might say is, well, that means I have to compromise all my standards. I have to compromise all my beliefs in Scripture. I can't follow what Scripture says. That's not what he's saying. Because compromising is setting aside a truth I have no business setting aside. It's something God has said, do or don't do. And I can't violate that. In First Peter 2, 2 Peter 2, he's talking about some false teachers who are coming in. They had eyes full of adultery and satiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed. Forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. Is that what we're supposed to do? I use sin to try to get it? No. It's never a right to sin. I don't compromise Scripture to do this. What I do is try to condescend. Condescending means to meet somebody at their level. And I probably have to give up some of my rights to do that. You remember in John chapter 13? What did Jesus do in John chapter 13 with the disciples? And remember that? What did he do? Wash the disciples' feet, right? You understand he had to give up his rights to do that? He gave up his rights to have his feet washed. He gave up his rights to hospitality from whoever owned that home. He gave up his rights to relax after the meal. He gave up his rights as the creator to be served by his creatures. And he gave up all those rights to wash their feet and give them an example to follow. That's what Paul's talking about. If it takes me giving up my rights to make a disciple and win a hearing, I don't have to have my rights. I meet them at their level. And that's my choice that I'm free to do. Now we look at all this and we have to figure out, all right, what are we talking about for us? How do we keep getting so focused on having our rights, on being able to do what we want to do? Because that's where the tension comes in in making disciples, in that we always are so focused, i got to have what I need to have or I think I need to have, as opposed to giving it up for somebody else. Well, how do I stop focusing on my rights? Here's some of the ways. Number one. Be more interested in having joy by serving Christ out of free choice than just out of duty. Did you get that last phrase, please? 
You realize how many things we do as Christians because we think it's our duty and I got to do it? Some of you are here in church this morning because you think I got to go to church on Sunday morning, so I'm here. Well, what a joy that is, isn't it? But I don't have to come Sunday night. That's not required. Or I got to read my Bible. I got to pray before meals. I got to do all this stuff. There's no joy in it at all. And so we get focused on our rights because we think I'm giving up my right, but I'm sitting in here. What if you started doing your stuff out of joy for Christ rather than being like the servants in Luke 17? So you too, when you have done all, all everything you were commanded to do, should say, we are slaves undeserving a special praise. We've only done what was our duty. Is that what you want to be? That's what most Christians are, which is why they're so focused on their rights. Look here in chapter 9, verse 17, what Paul says. If I do this of my own will, my own choice, I have a reward. If not of my own will, I'm still entrusted with a stewardship. I still have things I'm supposed to do, but it's so much better to do it out of free choice. In 2 Corinthians chapter 9, he'll say this about giving. Each one must give as he decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. You realize you didn't have to give anything this morning? Some of you think you have to. It just said, not under compulsion. You realize you'll probably give more if you give it willfully and sacrificially and cheerfully than you will out of duty? Because you give up your rights to it. You don't care when it goes. Serve out of joy, and your rights become secondary. Secondly, be more interested in God's glory and God's work than our own rights. We focus so much on what we think we want rather than what God should want. 1 Corinthians 10.31, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. That's why he says, my conscience is based on the other person's beliefs, not mine, because I do it for the glory of God. If I'm doing it for that, I don't care if I have to give up rights. I care which is best for His glory. He says this in Romans 14. It was read for you this morning. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Do not, for the sake of your rights, destroy God's work. Because our rights are secondary. Third, be more interested in loving others than just loving ourselves. You understand when we're focused on our rights, all we're doing is loving ourselves. Right? I want what I want. I want what I want, when I want, how I want. Takashi read this for you this morning. In Romans 14, therefore let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or a hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it's unclean for anyone who thinks it's unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. Are they more important or are we more important? And lastly, be more interested in the eternal than just the temporal. In Romans 14, it also said this, the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking. It's not the temporal things. They're important. We can enjoy those at times. You understand that? 
But the kingdom of God really is the eternal righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Look at chapter 9, verse 24 of 1 Corinthians. Don't you know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. Somebody has put it this way. In your spiritual life, run to win rather than just run to get by. When you just run to get by, you get so focused on your own priorities, your own rights, you start getting upset. If you run to win, if you're more interested in the eternal, which is making disciples, than just enjoying the temporal life, you'll find your rights aren't that important. You understand we're coming up with the summer season where in our culture we're told the summer's for you. Just enjoy a life any way you want. It's all about you. Nobody else comes first. You do. That's not what God says. The eternal is more important. And that's why Paul says this in verse 19, Though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. Verse 22, I have become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessings. If you've accepted Christ as Savior, you are a disciple. What rights will you give up to be the disciple that you should be? Pray with me. Father, you know how challenging this is for us to give up what we think is our right. We're so thankful you have provided so many things for us to enjoy. But the problem is we enjoy them too much. And instead of worshiping you, we start worshiping our rights. Will you help us to be more God-focused, more you-focused, more others-focused, and not be so rights-focused? that we can make the, be the disciples that you want us to be. We pray this in the name of your Son. Amen.